Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Science Yale Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Josh Hacker, co-founder and chief science officer at Jupiter Intelligence, to talk about climate risk. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather. Josh, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Jupiter Intelligence? Sure. So my formal education background is really in atmospheric science, or sometimes we call it atmospheric physics, especially the area that I've focused on in my past research life in the public sector. I spent most of my career at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, was sometime on, on faculty at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. What led us to Jupiter to start Jupiter Intelligence, besides the fact that we believe that a mark, there was a new market poised to open, is really the, the three fundamental pillars of how we're developing our products. One is the maturity of cloud computing. And then, of course, there's associated machine learning pipelines on that, really the cloud computing by itself. Second is the maturity of, of geophysical models that, that are really the, the domain of the public sector. Think, think large labs with contributions from, from the university communities. And these are things like weather models, ocean models that are derived from first principles of physics and solve large sets of, of differential equations, improvements. And these are the backbone of our environmental prediction. And they're also mature enough that improvements in those are, are incremental. And so um, they're very, very useful to do things like train machine learning models. And then the third thing is the maturity of the machine learning field, AI field, really, sort of the, the beginning, in some sense, the beginnings of its large-scale application to these kinds of earth science problems. AI has been a, a applied for, for decades of weather prediction, but in a very, very limited way, and, and times are evolving really quickly. So those three pillars combined again with the market, we thought it was a good time to, to get things going. Great. So what does Jupiter Intelligence do and why is this important for climate change adaptation? Sure. So our focus and really our, our core strength area is on physical risk, which is one part of risks associated with climate change. And there's a range of things within that. We typically think of, of chronic perils and, and acute perils where acute are extreme events. Things like the, an easy one for people to think about is tropical cyclones that can cause a lot of damage at once. There are also a lot of other things just like windstorms driven from any any number of different sources, for example. And then there's chronic perils that, that drive a different kind of risk. And these are things like increasing heat waves, nights that don't cool off as much. And so we're we're having to spend more money on, on air conditioning, those kinds of things. So all of that put together is really our strength. And the, that then feeds into other kinds of analytics that we typically think of in, in the economic space. So things like financial risk, where you might have probability of defaults on mortgages, for example, or just a loss, a loss from a large event, from an acute event, which is the kinds of things that insurance companies have worried about for a long time. The difference here is that we're thinking about what that looks like 10, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. So there's a few areas where this can be important. One is where we see a lot about in the news right now, it's around disclosure. In the disclosure world, in terms of the corporate world that needs to disclose their own risks from climate change, there's two big buckets. One is called transition risk. And that is transitioning to a green economy and, and how that can impact the business. We're not really talking about that today. That's not our strength at Jupiter. We, we partner with companies that do that. For us, we focus on the physical risk on the other side. And, that's, uh, and both of those 
are part of the disclosure that is becoming more and more required. Um, it's been part of guidelines for several years, but these are the new requirements that are coming online all over the developed world are focusing on those two things. So that's one area is disclosure. The second is the leading uses of the kinds of data that we provide, the leading users, I should say, businesses that are ahead of the curve are really looking for ways to use our our information to derive business advantages. So they're they're bringing our information into different business units and they're committed to figuring out how to use it. It is a new kind of data for them. And so they're learning, but they're making progress and they'll be the leaders. And we believe they'll be the ones that that are, are sort of winning in the economic market over the long term. And then the third is kind of the broader impacts. And, and this is something we also hear a bit about in the news, just climate change impacts on underserved communities, other ways that companies like us can support government efforts. So for more broader uh, policy-based adaptation decisions. And those are sort of, I think of them as broader impacts because the vast majority of capital that we're using and we will be using to, to adapt to climate change is really locked up in the private sector. But on the other hand, government has a role in policy. And so these two things have an interplay that then feed into broader sort of community or broader population benefits. And then kind of related to that, but we see it in our in our customer base is, is that companies do care about their workforces. And so that's part of the way that they think about their risks going into the future is am I going to have a workforce? Are they going to be able to, are they going to be able to get to job sites or into the office? Are they going to be stressed out more because they're working outside and those kinds of things? So those three areas, I think, are are where we're seeing impacts from what we do. And what role does machine learning play in your technology to to assess these types of risk? Yeah, so there, there are a number of areas, but I want to focus on just a couple maybe. One is, I'll just call loosely, error modeling. So you know everything we do starts from global climate models, which are in the domain of large labs. And they're integrated closely with the IPCC process, and so the, and those are those are imperfect. Like any geophysical model, they're imperfect, and so they have errors. And if if we want to make things useful, we need to build a build a model that corrects for the error. And often people think of just bias, but there are more components to the error than that. And then the second area is on is on what we call downscaling, which is a common term in my field, but it may be a less common term in some of the other fields that, of listeners here. And really what that is, is taking these global climate, in our context, it's taking global climate models as inputs and which are very large scale in terms of what they can, what they can see or what they can simulate around the globe. So they're typically sort of one degree type, type of, of grids. If you think about a grid all over the entire planet, that means things smaller than that, they can't really see. So they can't see tropical cyclones, for example. And so downscaling is about taking that large scale information which is also in our world also slow. So large and slow go together, small and fast go together. And taking the large and slow information and building in information that's small and fast. And the reason that's important is because that's where the impacts are. Things like again, tropical cyclones, thunderstorms, storm surges that affect the coastline, intense rainfall of other kinds, windstorms of all kinds, all these things are fast and small relative to one degree, which is sort of 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers. So downscaling is a big part of what we do combined with the error modeling. And those are the two areas where we get the most use out of machine learning. So the downscaling is really to take the larger scale, low granularity predictions and try and get something more granular in time and space. Is that right? That's exactly right. What kind of challenges do you encounter in in working with data from, from climate models like these? Yeah, there are a number, but to mention a couple here, and and I want to talk about data 
mostly in terms of bits and bytes as opposed to data in the classic sense, which, which at least in my field is, is observational-based data. And so thinking back to both the climate models, but also what we derive from those based by bringing in other information, sometimes observational data, and sometimes other model-based data, right? So it's a, it's a bringing in a bunch of different sources of data, combining them in a way that gives us our error models and our downscaling models in, in a way that is as accurate as we, as we can make them. And there's a couple, I think one of the main challenges here is at the end of the process, right? Well, how do we know we've done something right? And so I know we'll talk a little bit more, I, I think about validation and verification, but just to mention it here, this is one of the big challenges because we're looking into the future over time scales that we can't say for sure it's it's correct, right? In a weather forecast by tomorrow, I know if my forecast was correct. In our case, I have to wait 10 years or 20 years to know if it's correct. So what we have to do is look at all our different modeling components and this sort of chain of models that gets us our final output and build in steps to, to verify each step along the way. And it ends up looking like a big body of circumstantial evidence in a sense. So that that's one key challenge. And then the other key, maybe it's not the key challenge, but an opportunity is having subject matter experts in the loop is a really critical part of this because sometimes it just doesn't even pass the smell test, right? And you need to know that that it's got to pass the smell test before you even get into more quantitative approaches. So somebody who knows something about atmospheric physics, climate change, climate modeling, those kinds of things, these are critical for us. So the validation you mentioned there already, but let's go into that in in a bit more detail. Because you can't see into the future, of course, you you mentioned you're really validating each step along the way. Is that how you approach validation for both the, the error and the downscaling models? It is. It is. So there are sort of, you know, in the, in the pure sort of AI or machine learning world, we can think of classic ways to validate, right? Cross-validation, you know, all the usual ways we would we would do something like this. And we do that, right? That's a critical piece of it. And if you think of that process, that machine learning process being embedded in maybe along a chain of other machine learning or or simpler statistical-based approaches, for example, then then we want we need to validate all along the way. And then we also want to validate the inputs and the outputs. So there's kind of every step along the way, there, there's more to do. And just to give an example, on the outputs, all kinds of things we need to do to make sure things are working. You know, you're doing spatial consistency checks, you're doing spatial gradient checks, you're checking to make sure that the trends are what you expect. You know, this is of course all automated, but many, many steps. So we at Jupiter, we spend as much time validating as if you're actually building models, just to give you an idea. So the sort of talking around your question a little bit, Heather, but the reality is there's no one, there's no one way. It's a complicated process that you have to build in to make sure that things are working right all along the way. It definitely makes sense that it's complicated when you can't see the future and you have to do your best to validate anyway. Right. And this might come back to the validation piece as well, but how do you think about the balance between model accuracy and explainability in your setting? Are they equally important? Is one more important than the other? Yeah, that's a great question. I it does come back into the into the question of validation. For us, because of the way our data is getting used, I mentioned three three ways or kind of three areas of importance before. One is around disclosure. Disclosure is it's a regulatory thing. And in the US, for example, banks are heavily regulated. And so for them, explainability of the models that they use is critical. And that essentially passes down to us, right? So it's really, really important in, in this regulatory environment. And as a science in our field, you know, XAI, explainable AI, as a quantitative science is, I would say, is in its relative infancy. 
the one thing we have for us, which is not generally true, is we have physics, right? And we have physics-based models that we can rely on. So for example, a weather prediction model that can see a lot more things than a climate than a climate model. There are some of the big labs and universities are running long simulations at very, very fine scales that cover part of the globe. Maybe they cover the United States or something like that. And so that gives you another source of information you can use to both build in or to build or train your machine learning model. It also gives you something you can validate against. And it also gives you something in a sense, and this is related to validation is, you know, those physics-based models, they're telling us about a relationship between physical variables or in space or trends in time or those kinds of things that are much easier to explain than something that comes out of an AI model that might appear like a black box in many ways. So we have other sources of data we can use to to get explainability, even if it's qualitative, right? And you know, the quantitative part, like I said, is kind of in its infancy, but we have a lot we can do qualitatively and say, hey, that adheres to the physics of the problem, right? So we believe it. Now, on the other hand, if we can't qualitatively explain it, we just we just won't use it. So that, that's our approach. You know, I think it remains to be seen whether that's what the market wants or not. But you know, really, it comes down to that explainability piece because of the physical models you have. That's part of your process. That's part of your model development. It's definitely not an afterthought. It's definitely not an afterthought. Yeah, and there and there are there's a whole growing field of physics constrained AI that uses AI in very different ways from how we are. But that's just sort of, sort of another area that that over time I think we'll be leaning on. So let's come back to the error modeling that you, that you mentioned earlier. How do you quantify model uncertainty? How, how do you quantify these errors? I'll revisit error briefly, and then I'll get into uncertainty. So I know those two words are often used interchangeably. I think of them as as distinct things, right? Error is something you can measure in, in our field. We have something to measure against. And so typically people think of bias. So it's the simplest way. It's the, it's the first moment of the error. That's fine. So a big part of what we do is make sure that we take the, the global climate models and we correct for those biases, right? We we actually correct the full distributions, but you know, so there's a bias in every quantile, if you will, or in the parameters of your of your historical distribution. So that's that's one part of it. If we're thinking about the future, it's now it's uncertain, right? We can assume that future errors are the same as historical errors, and that's a pretty good assumption that gets you a long way. But there are other sources of uncertainty in climate modeling. So a lot of the difference between climate modeling and weather modeling may help. Kind of provide some context here. So for weather prediction, right, we want to know the weather tomorrow or next week. We want the small, fast stuff. Right? We want to know what it looks like, when the storm's going to hit, how much it's going to rain, that kind of thing. We know we can't say anything about that in 10 years from now or 20 or 30 years from now. So the game in climate modeling is to actually pull the signal out from that noise. We want to pull out the slow stuff, how the climate changes, how the climate is changing relative to all the weather patterns that are that are going on underneath it. So just to give you an example, two examples. One is in 2030, some frequency of tropical cyclones that hits Houston might change. The frequency and the intensity, for example, th- those are going to be different. We want to try to say how those how that frequency and intensity is different. We're never trying to predict an individual tropical cyclone, right? Or even even necessarily saying how many will hit in that individual time. And then another place this comes up is, and, and that so any individual storm that's simulated at that time is part of the uncertainty in the climate change, right? It's like noise that goes on top of it. And what we're trying to do is get the signal out of that, okay? The other example is in all over the atmosphere, there are sort of, of modes, we call them modes of variability. And, and one 
the ones that most people are familiar with is El Nino Southern Oscillation, which has an imprint in global weather all over the planet. Okay, so think of it just as it has different phases, a positive phase and a negative phase. One is El Nino, the other is La Nina. It turns out there's bunches of other things like this around the planet. There's a Pacific Decadal uh, Oscillation, for example. There's Atlantic Meridional Oscillation. So, And these things all have an effect on the weather in different regions around the globe. So when we're running climate models going forward, say we're to look at 10 different climate model simulations from one climate model, right? It's an ensemble of simulations. We look at 2040 and we want to say, okay, what's the climate at 2040? We can think of the mean and the variability. Each one of those climate simulations is going to be in some phase of all those different oscillations that are going on. And 10 model simulations or 100 or whatever, you can't average it out perfectly, right? But you can start to average it out and then the rest becomes goes into the uncertainty, right? So there's that. It's a big piece of the uncertainty in, in understanding how climate is changing. There's also uncertainty around, oh, and, and I guess the other thing to close that thought is that's a snapshot at 2040. Then if you go to 2041, for example, all those phases are changing so that uncertainty can change. So what you, you want to do is try to build up large samples around a particular year so that you can try to both quantify that uncertainty and then beat down the error in the mean, if that makes sense. So you, you run a whole bunch of different simulations and then from that extract the larger trend and the uncertainty around that trend. Exactly. So the global climate modeling community runs all the simulations and then it's how we use them is to extract the trend is exactly right. Then you still have sampling error. It's another big piece of the uncertainty, especially when you're talking about extremes, right? Acute events. We want to say estimate a 500 year rainfall, even after we've downscaled it, you know, you have sort of order hundreds of simulations. That's pretty small to estimate a five, a 500 year rainfall because they're rare. And so we do, you know, we use extreme value theory and we fit the distributions, which by the way, there's an, there's an AI problem in there where you can use AI to rapidly fit these things, but I haven't really talked about that today. Okay. So, and what you can do, what you want to do is really fit that a bunch, a bunch of time, like sort of in a money, almost like a Monte Carlo. It's not a true Monte Carlo, but almost like a Monte Carlo simulation where you fit it over and over and over and over and over again. And that gives you uncertainty about, because every fit's a little bit different, it'll give you uncertainty in your fitting, right? So that's another part of it. And then the final part, the final big part of the error, sorry, the uncertainty in this process is the climate models themselves. So you have you know, the global climate modeling community. There's dozens of modeling centers that contribute models that ultimately make it up into the IPCC process. And all of them are different. Some of them share some histories. Some of them are, are pretty different from each other, but they all simulate their own climate because none of them are the real climate. And so the differences between those is part of the uncertainty as well. And, and when we do our calibration or our, our, our error correction, that takes care of a lot of that, but it doesn't take care of all of that. So there's residual uncertainty that goes in there. Okay, so all of that's in there. Then, most relevant to this podcast, you're building a, a machine learning model to do the error modeling and to do the downscaling. And there's that's another source of uncertainty. And I think the big the big question is: is that big? Is that uncertainty big relative to the other components of the uncertain of the uncertainty? I think on average, no. But of course, when you're doing these kinds of modeling, you get distributions, and so you have information you can use to get uncertainty about it. So there's a lot, there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into the into what we do, and we you know we do our best to try to capture every component of it. It's kind of one of these things where you can always get better. Yeah, well, there's with so many sources, you have to model it as best you can and try to understand it as best you can. But you can't 
control for everything. That's that's right. Weather and the climate, after all. So yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's sort of a, a the big picture here is, you know, yes, we know the models aren't perfect. Are they good enough to make decisions on? I think the answer is a clear yes, right? And and I think the academics would back back me up on that. So you touched on bias a little bit, but I want to dig into that a little bit more. How might bias manifest in, in, in these climate risk models, and how do you even identify it? Because the, the global climate models are a key input. One of the things that happens is that well, so we can estimate the bias and the mold and bias, and then the higher moments of the error from that because all the contributing centers are required to run historical period simulations. And we have from the weather prediction world, we have histories of four-dimensional weather, if you will, you know, in three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. And typically it's called so the weather prediction centers, large weather prediction centers provide something based on a weather prediction system that's called a reanalysis. Okay. They go back in time and they reproduce the state of the earth or the atmosphere, the land surface, the ocean, whatever, depends on, on how complex they get it. And so, and the intent is I have a recent generation weather prediction model, a recent generation data data assimilation system, which essentially is initialization for that model that brings in all the observations. And I can go back and without making true like long weather predictions, I can just reproduce the history of, of the states of, of the earth you know, system. And those are the best so they're combined model and observations. And the benefit of it is you have the model itself is spreading in space and time the observational information in a way that's self-consistent. And so that those are the best sources of information to do that first bias correction. And not just us, you know, other players in the field are, are doing something like that and using these reanalyses to do that. It's kind of funny if you look in the climate literature, it goes so far as to when researchers are just looking at the GCMs themselves and trying to validate them, which is not a big field, but they do some of that. They sometimes call those reanalyses observations, which they which they most definitely are not. But they're sort of one of the best sources of information we have. And you can think of it as the best truth we have, even though they have their own biases, for example. So because of that historical period and the existence of these reanalyses, we have something we can do to correct the historical statistics of the climate models. And so every climate model we bring in, for example, we do this correction process. We correct the whole distribution on the inputs that we need then to do the downscaling. So that's that's how we deal with bias from that. And then the other part of bias I mentioned before is, is from sampling, right? I mean, I think many of the listeners here are probably very familiar with uncertainty in, in distribution fitting. And so we use, we use methods, you know, Bayesian approaches to get it at the uncertainty that, that arises from the sampling, which can also be which can also be biased if you really don't have a good enough sample. Sounds like there's a lot of complexity there, but it's a very important part of, of what you're working on. Oh, it's, it's essential. I mean, if you don't correct the biases, you're not going to be close. There's no yep. doubt. <laughs> These are not small biases. I mean, we're used to, you know, day to day, we're used to, again, weather prediction, where a weather prediction, people might not believe this, but a, typically say a weather prediction, maybe it's easy to think about temperature for tomorrow. The biases in those are sort of the same order of error of the observations themselves, right? They're like a degree. Right. And that, but that's not true of a climate model. Climate models can be way off. Gotcha. That makes sense. And is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI powered startups? For me, and this is, of course, biased based on my, my time at Jupiter and how I see the market. And, and it's a focus on, on environmental startups in particular. So I won't address pharma or something like that is make sure you have subject matter experts. Right. It's so critical for the verification validation, for the explainability and those kinds of things. And one of the 
one of the challenges is that what it ends up meaning is kind of in sort of a pure tech world, for example, is the R&D process might look a little different from, say, developing something that's, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but, you know, an, an app, right? So you, there's a little more investment needed to do that. And I think that's that's the main thing that people need to be aware of. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that that domain expertise is, is critical to most machine learning applications, but especially anything that is trying to create an impact Certainly in the environmental domain, healthcare is it's essential as well, having the, the clinical point of view. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I mean, yeah, you know, we are we are trying to empower the world with things that have big impacts and and we want to be, you know, have integrity in what we're doing and and also do the best job we can. The integrity and just the multidisciplinary nature, there's information that no one person in one field can understand about the full problem. And a machine learning engineer definitely doesn't understand it all. That they need the the perspective from those who understand the data and where it came from and how it's going to be used and that whole collaboration come together. Yeah, that's a great point. It is very multidisciplinary. I mean, we have machine learning engineers. We also have, you know, hydrologists, atmospheric scientists, coastal engineers, the list goes on and on. So where do you see the impact of Jupiter Intelligence in three to five years? Yeah, I mean, we're really focused on building out a, a company that, that's doing the right things and helping the global economy adapt. The market's still moving, so it's hard to be super precise about this, you know, from a personal standpoint, I know I speak for my colleagues here, we want to continue to be the leader in, in physical risk. That's really we built the company as, as that with that as the foundational capability. And we have no intention of giving that up. And because the market's still moving, there's some timeline that's probably a long three to five years before things really, really settle down. So we want to make sure we're in that spot at that time. And then in terms of machine learning and AI in particular, I think the growth area for us is in the other kinds of modeling that we'll be doing. You know, we can always continue to get better in the physical risk side by applying more sophisticated AI where, where that demands it. It doesn't always demand it. Sometimes the support regression is enough. I think there's a big opportunity area for machine learning AI on the analytics side. So the financial modeling, the loss modeling, and that kind of thing. You know, it already happens in companies that are focused more on that or you know, in other non-environmental kinds of things. But I think for us, that's that's a big growth area. And, and in three to five years, we will be applying a lot more machine learning and AI in, in that context. This has been great. Josh, your team at Jupiter is doing some really interesting work for climate risk analysis. I expect that the insights you shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Well, first of all, let me thank you, Heather, for having me. It's been an enjoyable conversation, and I hope that listeners can find a nugget or two in there. I mean, our our website's pretty easy to find. It's actually relaunched it recently. So it's www.jupiterintel.com. And then myself, of course, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, but somewhat not the most proactive in terms of social media. So, but I'm getting better and look forward to hearing from people who, who listen and have follow-up questions. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. Have a great one. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.